If you have a Bible, you can open it up to, hmm, let me think here. Where should we go this morning? I haven't quite, I haven't, yeah, I haven't quite decided yet. Um, uh, yeah, let me just like flip through and, um, well, how about the middle? Let's go somewhere in the middle. No, um, we're going to, um, we're going to be kind of jumping around a little bit, but I think uh, there's a verse there in, in the insert that'll probably, um, or a passage in the insert, Jeremiah 17. Uh, you can go there if you'd like to kind of be any one place. Um, we're going to be, like I said, jumping around a little bit. This morning we're talking, uh, we are wrapping up our series that we've been in all summer. Um, actually, Pastor Aram is going to be uh, preaching next weekend, and he's going to sort of, um, I think it'll be, uh, I'm not sure quite, it'll be, a, it'll be connected to this series, but I'm not sure, it's not going to be just like a summary, because I don't know, those are lame, you know, the like the summary, you're like, oh, I came this weekend and they're doing a summary or whatever, but um, the, uh, the, it's going to be in some way connected, but this morning we really are kind of wrapping up this series that we've been doing over the summer, where we've been looking at these things about God that are fairly basic and yet pretty impactful in the way that we live our lives and how we go about being who we are. If we believe these fundamental truths about God, that he is great, that he is good, that he is gracious, uh, last few weeks we've been looking at what it means that God is glorious, um, then uh, these things change everything about the way that we live our lives. They change everything about the way that we deal with and struggle with things on even a day-to-day basis. Our very belief in God um, affects the way that we live in such a profound way. And it's the basic things that we believe about God. It's not necessarily the acquiring of an abundance of information about complexities of who God is that seems to have the greatest impact on the specifics of how we live, but it is some of the most basic things about God that we assume, I already know that, I already get that, I already understand that. It's not hard for me to know. Why in the world have we been spending all summer talking about these things? Because these are the things that shape so much about the way that we actually go about living. We've been talking about this idea that God is glorious, and I'm just going to tell you right now that this morning, the challenge is this. We're talking about something that every single person I've ever met in my life deals with. We're also talking about something that almost every single person I've ever met in my life says they don't deal with. So I'll say that one more time. You all deal with this. You don't think you do. There you go. That's the shortened version, okay? So we're going to start. I'm just going to put that out there. So if you find yourself sitting here going, oh, no, not me. Yes, you. Okay. Uh, You can think. If you want to listen the whole time and think about the person next to you, that's fine. But but it's probably going to apply to you a little bit more than you might even want to admit, Proverbs 29, 25 says this, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Throughout the Bible, we run into this idea again and again that you can trust in God, your eyes can be fixed on who God is and how big and great and glorious he is, or they can be fixed on something else. And the most common thing that we will spend our lives focused on, most people, when I say we, most people on this planet that we're living with here, will spend our lives focused on is 
what Proverbs 29 calls the fear of man. The fear of man is the thing that drives most people most of their lives. Now, the fear is, uh, that sounds adversarial. You're like, I don't know about that. Things would be a little bit more intense. I mean, I get that they're intense. I agree with you, but they'd be a little bit more intense than that if we were all running around afraid of each other. Fear means concern. The concern of what man sees when they see me, what they think of when they think of me, who I am in the eyes of man is significant to the majority of people on this planet. And what Proverbs 29 says is the fear of man lays a snare, a trap. If you find yourself living for this, you're falling into a trap that will lead to your demise. But whoever trusts in the Lord will be safe. Well, okay, that's simple. We're done. You guys got it? We got it? Good. Don't fear man. Fear the Lord. Who wants to fall in a trap? I don't. You don't. Let's go home. Have a great weekend. We'll see you later. I mean, that's simple, right? Okay, fine. We'll go with that. The problem is just how easy it is to find ourselves living our lives for this thing. There is a tremendous joy that is offered to us in God. A fullness of life that is offered to us in who God is because we were created to live in light of Him. The Bible tells us this power is there. We just have to know where and how to find it. Real wisdom, real love, real strength, these things all come from something. And that something is not the fear of man. Why do most people, why do even most professing Christians not experience this fullness of life? Because of the fear of man. Now when we talk about this, the concern of man, who we are and how we appear in the eyes of others, and again we go, that's not me, man. Believe me, it's not me. It's the person next to me for sure. It's definitely all the people I can't stand, but it is not me. This is what this looks like. It starts out when we're young, and we call it peer pressure, okay? So the, so the most obvious tell of somebody who struggles with this is you find yourself susceptible to peer pressure. What people around you are doing, what they think is cool, the clothes that they wear, the music they listen to, the way they talk, the things they believe, those things persuade you. You feel a sense of pressure from your peers, now, what we presume is that we grow out of that. I've never met an adult who doesn't think they grew out of peer pressure, and I've never met an adult who has grown out of peer pressure. Why? When we grow out of it, when we get older, we call it other things. Are you someone who's easily embarrassed? Are you someone who struggles to take yourself a little too seriously? Who, who, who finds yourself sometimes very worried about how you know someone might perceive of you when you have no ability to control that? 
I might be misunderstood. They may not get it. It might be my spouse. It might be my children. It might be people that I only see uh, in passing. But the fear of that misunderstanding, the interpretation of who I am based on that alone, is hard for me. There are those of us who are overcommitted. We do too much. We try to accomplish too much. We try to, we try to achieve too much. Why? Because we need to. Because our very worth is wrapped up in the things that we do. For some, going to work is just going to work. Having a boss is just having a boss. For others, that boss, that person, those people that we report to who see us, who decide how good what we're doing ultimately is, we become slaves to those people. Not because they've necessarily made us that way, but because we have found ourselves needing for them to like who we are and what we do. We have a word for this. It's called codependent. It gets thrown around a lot. Now, codependent is, is, is it gets applied and thrown around all over the place. But a pretty safe, easy way to describe what this is, is a person whose life is dictated by the needs of others. So the idea is a person who really would struggle to define what they're doing, what they're about, their value, without appealing to the needs of other people. Sometimes we say this is called needing to be needed. Some of the most generous, loving Kind people, it seems, doing the things that we're doing out of a need to be needed, out of a need to be the one to show up, to help, to answer, to solve constantly. Some of us find ourselves lying when we don't need to. We call them little white lies. I don't know why. I should have looked that up. But we have this phrase, little white lies. We find ourselves uh, not being entirely honest when we know that we kind of messed up something, even if it's not that big of a deal, even if it's not that big of a thing, we find ourselves covering it up because our appearance matters more than our integrity. Sometimes we find ourselves lying and covering things up that are much bigger because our appearance matters more than our integrity, than being honest about who we are and what we're dealing with. Some of us lie just to look better than we really are. It's not a matter of covering things up. It's just a matter of being a little bit better, being my best constantly. And it's okay that I have to fudge things a little bit in order to be that way. I need my boss to be happy with me. I need my spouse to love me. I need my kids to see me a certain way. I, want my, I need my parents to see me a certain way. It is hard for me to think of my worth without comparing myself to other people. That's a hard thing to think of. Like, to think about how good I'm doing, I don't really know how to think about that without thinking of how good I'm doing compared to all the people that aren't doing as well as me. In fact, that might sound like, wait, why would anyone think that way to you? I mean, how could you know that you're doing well? How could you know how you're doing unless you're comparing yourself 
to the people around you, the people you see who aren't doing well. At least I'm not them. Some people simply feel like they're, I know this might sound crazy to you, but it also might be you. Some people might, some people are afraid with this feeling of simply being found out, even though there's nothing to find out. People will see that I'm not who they think I am. People will see that I'm some kind of an imposter. People will see that ultimately I'm just not the person that they say that I am. For many of us, fear of man is the reason why when we talk about things even as basic as sharing our faith or making disciples, those things are actually, when we're honest, total abstractions because they would never happen in our lives. Because the thought of actually, like, talking to a person about the hope they have in Jesus, knowing the risk that is involved in that, in how they will see me, means we talk about it, we acknowledge that we need to do it, but the only time that we might be able to is maybe, maybe in a place where no one speaks our language. The fear of man is a real thing. We have words for it, all kinds of different ones. But we read in Proverbs 29 that it is a trap that we fall into. One counselor, one biblical counselor named Ed Welch said it this way, fear of man is such a part of our human fabric that we should check for a pulse if someone denies it. As I was going, as I was beginning to prepare for this message over the last few weeks, I was thinking of this sort of as, you know, some people struggle with this. We all have our things that we struggle with, but the more that I looked at it and the more that I reflected on my time with people, my own life, what the Bible tells us is the root of so much of our issues that we deal with, so many of our issues, I felt that this statement actually makes a lot more sense. One of the sort of standard texts for the sake of having a good reset, a good understanding of how we're supposed to objectively see ourselves and the world around us is found in Jeremiah 17, where the prophet is talking to the people of God. He says this, we're going to look at just six verses here this morning. They're kind of long verses though. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhibited salt land. So what this is describing in Jeremiah is a person living their life in a very hostile environment. And they've become to depend on uh, something that is very unreliable, doesn't produce much fruit, doesn't seem like there's much hope or promise for abundance in this shrub. The man who trusts in man, who makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord, meaning to turn towards either other men or himself, in how he considers himself, and how he sees himself, in what matters as the focus of his very life, that man is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. 
I'm pretty sure this is an insult. You're like a shrub in the desert. What do you really expect is going to happen other than you will survive until you die? As you dwell in these parched places, this world in which we live, this uninhabited land, you will have tied yourself to something that promises you no abundance. You have decided to find life in something that does not actually deliver, but will leave you parched and never actually experiencing the fullness of life that God promises those who know him. The reason for this is because of what fear of man does to us. When we fear people, when we consider the way that we are, when we, when we look at ourselves through the lens of how other people see us, through the value that we have according to other people, just their perceptions of us, then there's a couple things that it does to us that sort of causes this breakdown to happen in our lives. The first one is this. It makes us need people more than we love them. If I need you to like me, if I need you to approve of me, then I just said it right there. I need you. And that doesn't necessarily mean that I love you. In fact, to love you means to, to live differently towards you, to care about other things in your life than just getting the response that I want. Fear of man makes us need people more than we actually love people. We so often, I think, mistake needing each other, needing validation from each other, needing to know that people are okay with us and like us, or the big one, needing to know that people are impressed with us, that we mistaken that for love. We mistaken it for community. And if that's the case, then you get all the love and community you need just by going online, where people can affirm us and and, and like us and approve of us in the way that we want, and we can ignore those that we don't want. This is why people like dogs and not cats. Because dogs need you. And cats don't. When I come home, when I come home, my dog is desperate to see me. And it's great. He has this like moaning thing that I used to think like, uh, was a bad thing. I thought for a while that he was like, he was sick and there was something wrong with him. It was just how incredibly happy he was to see me when I came home. People love that. Now, I'm, I'm not against cat people, against cats. I think cats are great. I've had cats. Cats are wonderful. But I've only ever had cats that actually liked me and wanted me. And I do often wonder about why there are so many homes for cats that don't seem to want anything to do with the people in those homes. I was, I was raised with a cat. We had a cat in our house named Snuggles. That was his name. You couldn't touch him. You couldn't pick him up. You were to leave him alone at all times. That was, those were the three rules with Snuggles the cat. I didn't name him. <laughs> See, 
You might think, well, I don't want to be around people who need me like that. I don't want to be around people who are exploiting me so that they feel good about themselves. Uh, no, I wouldn't like that. I wouldn't want that. Maybe, maybe people do that, but I don't want those people around me or in my life. But that's not true. We want to be needed. We like to be needed. We like people needing us in order for them to be okay in some weird way. But fear of man causes us. It, it, it perverts the very relationships that we have and makes them something that they were never intended to be for us. The other thing that the fear of man does is this. We're more afraid of our friends than we are of our enemies. Now, this is important. This is where most of us would say, I'm telling you, this is not a problem for me. Because when you hear the phrase fear of man, you think, oh, I don't care what people think. I don't care especially what those people think. But by far, the biggest impact that the opinions of others will have on us is not with our enemies and not with those we disagree with. We're incredibly good at ignoring those opinions and ideas. In fact, we find ourselves somehow validated often by how much other people disprove of us and dislike us. It is the people in our community. It is the people near us. It is the people around us those are the ones that we fear the most. And by fear, I mean are concerned with the most. If you want to ask yourself, is this a struggle for me? Is this an issue for me? Don't ask yourself, am I afraid of all those people out there that I think are out to get me? But ask yourself, how much value and weight do I give the opinions of my friends, of my family, of my community, when it comes to my value as a person, to, to how I'm doing in life, to what I should be doing in life, to where things are going and if they're going okay or not. As a, as a pastor, I'm more impacted and affected by the opinions of people in the church, I find often, than those of people outside of the church. We all have those fears in our lives. The fear of man is a real thing, and Jeremiah tells us to be careful because it is a trap. Fear is reverence. It is caring about being concerned about the opinions and the reactions of man. Now, the Bible has a solution for this, and it's an incredibly simple one. There is something that is bigger than the fear of man, and it is the fear of God. And what Scripture tells us very plainly, and then also in lots of other not-so-plain ways, that if we grow in our understanding of who God is, of how big He is, of how glorious He is, then His opinion of us, His view of us, will far outweigh and drown out all the other ones. Fear of God is respect of God. It is worship of God. It is trust of God. It is submission to God. The next two verses here in Jeremiah 17, the contrast to what it is to trust in man and in the flesh is this. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. What is that man like? He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes. 
For its leaves remain green, and it is not anxious in the year of drought. For it does not cease to bear fruit. One who is planted by the water. One who is, who is focused, who is fixed on, who trusts in the Lord is like a tree that is planted by water. It sends out his roots by the stream. Why? Because the stream is a constant source of water and life. Rather than a shrub that basically is having to learn how to live in an environment where there is no water and there is no life and make the most of it, the tree that is planted by the stream is one that has access to life constantly. And so, of course, its roots will grow towards the water. And because of that, it will not fear when the heat comes. The heat will still come. The environment will still feel hostile. The same sun will shine upon this tree as it will upon the shrub in the desert. But what is different is this tree has planted itself next to a source of life that will give it the ability to not fear when the heat comes because its leaves will remain green. It is not anxious in the year of drought, and it does not cease to bear fruit. Could you even imagine if your life was a life in which this could be said to be true of it? That regardless of the season of life, regardless of what was going on in the world, regardless of how well you were doing or how much you wish you could just kind of scrub this year off the books and start again, that the leaves remained green, that the fruit continued to be produced, that even though the scorching heat came, that you continued to have life. This is what it is to trust in and fear the Lord. This is what it is to have a view of God that is big enough. Because this is the answer. The answer is simple. We need a bigger view of who God is. The answer is not that we all need to say, I don't care what you think anymore. The answer is that we need to say, I need more of him. Because the glory of God, the greatness of God, changes everything. This is a reason that we could spend three months talking about something as simple as the greatness, the graciousness, the goodness of God. Because the more that we focus on who God is, the more that that impacts everything about the way that we live. And the answer is a hard one because it simply starts with, I don't mean to get preachy here, I try not to in sermons, but it starts with looking at this, all right, here we go, here we go, more than this. And you're like, wait, this is on this. Okay, fair enough. But you know what? If you can't control yourself, then just maybe get one of these. We've got some. Look at this more than you look at this. Give more time to who he is and what he says more than you give to the opinions of others, the views of others, the affirmations and the acknowledgments and the encouragements and the love and appreciation of others. To spend more time focused on who God is than we do on other things. 
I was watching something where it was an interview with one of the creators of, one of the guys who created the, I don't even, it's crazy that you can say this, one of the guys who created the like button. You're like, I'm pretty sure there was some kind of a like button before this. Apparently not. He got credit. One of the creators of the like button on Facebook, and he was saying this in an interview, he said, if only we had known when we were creating the like button how badly it would go. We just wanted a way for people to feel good and be nice to each other. If we had known it would lead to mental health epidemic for the young, a measurable rise in depression and social anxiety, and a 30-year high in political polarization, we wouldn't have created the like button. There is tremendous power, it seems, in being able to focus on what other people say they like about us and approve about us and appreciate about us than what God says about himself. And it's addicting. The Bible often describes God as a source of light or a source of heat. He is like the sun. He is like a fire. He is a bright light. All of these are things that we think of as bringing life to like our planet, that, that, that you can see because of the light that is there. But the very sun gives us life. And there's something about the sun, there's something about the power contained within the sun that you also can't get too close to it. You go, wait, so does that mean we're not supposed to spend so much time? No, that's not what it means. Because the holiness of God tells us that no matter how much time that we spend reflecting on who God is and understanding who he is and what he says about himself and how big he is compared to everything else and everyone else, that we also know that he is even bigger still. That there is no end to the amount that we can know and understand about God. And there is no way that on this life, that in this life, that we could ever possibly truly comprehend the bigness and the greatness of Him. When God is big, people are small. Because that is how it's supposed to be. Unfortunately, many of us deal with the feelings that come from fear of man by trying to make people smaller which only hurts our relationships and hurts things to a further degree. When God is big, it puts creation, man, people in the place in which we were always intended to be. And when God is big, I am small. Thanks, Ed. What a feel-good message this is. When God is big, I am small. So I'm telling you this, the fullness, the abundance, the joy, the peace that comes from God himself somehow also works in this place where I'm small? How is that? The reason why that, that hits us wrong, the reason that seems like it doesn't, shouldn't be the solution is because the way that we in our world generally handle a fear of man is not with the bigger view of God, it is with the bigger view of ourselves. The most common solution to dealing with any of the issues that I listed at the beginning of our message this morning is to boost your self-esteem, to find ways to feel better about who you are independent of other people, even though there's no such thing as that when it comes to the details of how we boost how we feel about who we are. 
The idea is I need to love myself more. You should love yourself more. If only we were all able to love ourselves as much as we should, we would be better, all of us. I wouldn't need your approval or your approval or your approval because I would know that just by myself, by the things that I do, by who I am, by the life that I live, I'm enough. I'm good enough. But a big view of God points out to us just how small even we are. The love of myself is where most of us tend to go. And so if most of us, if everyone deals in some way to some degree with the fear of man, then I think it's safe to say that the struggle for us is to not deal with the fear of man with the love of ourselves, which is the common way that we will be inclined to deal with it. Where does religion come from? And by religion, I mean the religious leaders that Jesus fought with again and again. Where does self-righteousness come from? Where does hypocrisy and arrogance come from? It comes from the desperate need to justify ourselves in the face of the fear that we have of other people. Jeremiah goes on to say this, after talking about the, the, the dangers of trusting in man and the good of seeing God for who he is, goes on to say, the heart is deceitful above all things, about all things, and desperately sick, who even, who could understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds." So the idea of loving yourself more is attached to the idea that you are ultimately good. That once you understand truly what is in your heart and can live that out to its fullest extent, you will then be someone who can be proud no matter what anyone else says about you. But the heart doesn't work that way. We want things that fight each other constantly. We want things that contradict each other constantly. And the Bible knows, as it says, the heart is deceitful above all things even to the point of being desperately sick. Who can understand it? Someone wrote thousands of years ago and is still true today. Who can possibly understand the heart? I could spend my whole life trying to figure myself out and not really figure myself out. Why? Because I don't make any sense half the time. That's what it is to live in the flesh. But because we live in the flesh and because we live in the world, we are constantly sort of assaulted by the way that the world would deal with things. When I, I grew up in, in Southern California, whenever I would leave town and then drive back into town, this is what I would see. If you've ever driven into a place with a lot of smog, you know this is smog. It's wonderful and glorious and beautiful and amazing. It adds this nice little hue to things once you're in it. But coming in from outside... You drive in every time, you're like, no, what? It can't be that bad all the time. It must be extra bad today. But then you get in it. You don't know you're in it. You don't know it's around you constantly. And this is, this is what it is to try to figure out how to make sense of things simply based on what we do in our world. The values of our culture and our world are around us. They influence us constantly. And it is so easy to be swayed by those things which tell me to love myself and that that is the solution. The reason loving myself makes the problem worse 
is because, as many of you already know, self-esteem will always be rooted in something. There will always be qualities that you take pride in. We become dependent on the thing that we're proud of. We become dependent on the thing that boosts our self-esteem. You feel good about yourself because of your job. You lose your job. And then what happens? You retire from your job. And then what happens? You become uh, a person who sees a lot of value in themselves because of the amount of money that you make until the day that you find yourself filing for bankruptcy and having to ask yourself, who am I now despite this thing changing? I remember I was once talking to a friend of mine who um, had raised three, uh, I think they were teenagers at the time, three teenage sons, and they were just the nicest, most respectful, most conscientious like young men. They were. They were, they were great guys, great kids. And people uh, were constantly telling him this. Like, man, just really great kids. Like, I just, what, how do you do it, you know? And, you know, like, I just really think that if there were more kids like this and there were more people like this in the world, you know? And, uh, and, and he was glad to hear that because him and his wife, they had put a lot of effort and work. They had sacrificed a lot of things so that their family would be a strong family. And I remember talking to him one time and him being very honest with me. And he confessed to me, he said, I don't know what I would do if one of my sons came home and said, Dad, I got my girlfriend pregnant. If one of his sons became addicted to drugs, if one of his sons dropped out of school. He said, I, he was realizing that he no longer wanted his boys to do well. He needed his boys to do well. Do you see the difference there? He realized that the thing that he wanted, when it became the thing that, that his worth and value was tied up in because it was what other people saw and affirmed in him, it started to add this weight on top of his own kids that was a crushing weight. He felt it himself. His wife felt it herself. This is what boosted self-esteem does. This is the danger of saying, I know I shouldn't be so worried about what other people think. I need to be okay with who I am independent of that. By raising my self-esteem, by finding the things that I can be proud of and finding my worth and my value in those things. I've known so many college students who have graduated and felt a sense of despair because their worth was tied to performance and grades and they're like, now what? I've talked to so many athletes who worked and killed themselves for a scholarship only to find out that the scholarship looked a lot more like just a little bit of financial aid to a school they weren't that pumped about going to. And then asking the question, now what? This was everything for me. I've walked through with other people, struggles with enough eating disorders, emotional breakdowns, relationships that end in domestic violence and abuse, to know that when something becomes your thing. You are granting that thing the power to destroy you in your desperation to need it to go well. And do not get me started on what happens if you actually attain your thing, because then it actually seems to do more damage to you in the end. Now, the Bible talks about this too. The Bible talks about what it looks like to, to try to do good things 
uh, in hopes that, you know, it will, it, it will show our value and our worth as being better. One of the best ways that Jesus talks about this is in the Sermon on the Mount when he talks about serving other people, being kind to other people, being generous to other people. He says this, he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. You see, the truth is, we know exactly what to do if we want to impress other people. We're very, very good, starting at a young age, of figuring out the thing that we're best at, that people appreciate and admire the most about us often, that makes us feel the most valuable by our own achievements, and then to focus as much as we can on that thing. We know how to do good things before men and for them to approve of us. But the warning that Jesus gives is this. He says, you will receive that accolade. You will receive the attention of people. You will be respected, and their view of you will go up. But here's the warning. You will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. He says, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. That means that what Jesus is saying is he's saying, fine, go out and do it, get the approval, get the accolade, people will love you, you might love yourself, and you will get nothing beyond that. That's all you'll get. Your reward has already been paid for what you've done. I mean, it's almost like something out of Twilight Zone, where like a person gets the ability to make wishes, and then they make a wish for a thing that they're convinced will make them happy, but then they realize, well, I didn't actually wish that I would be happy, I just wished for that thing, and then it turned out it didn't make me as happy as I thought, but now I'm stuck. Jesus is very clear. This isn't rocket science. If you do impressive things in front of other people, you will be impressive to other people. You might feel better about yourself for a while. But that is the extent of the reward that you will receive. Because that is your motivation, is a bigger view of yourself rather than doing things in light of who God is himself. When our worth is tied to these things, it robs us of the ability to take joy in these very things. To create art for the joy that it brings instead of needing it to be liked and appreciated to create music for the joy that it brings, to create for this world and business because of the joy that it brings you to do well, to love your children and love your spouse, to be a good member of a community, to serve in the church. All of the things that we do, we do better when we don't need, when we don't need to be seen as better because of what we do. I don't think there's anywhere that it's summed up better than this in Isaiah 33. It says, He will be the sure foundation for your times, a rich store of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. And the fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. He will be the sure foundation for your times, a rich store of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. 
There is a foundation that a fear of God will build, and upon that foundation, great things can grow and can happen. When I think about what it looks like to try to actually do this, I cannot help but think of two people in the New Testament. I think of Peter, and I think of Paul. And I think of them because they both have totally different ways of dealing with this. Peter, on one hand, is a guy that God comes to, that Jesus comes to, and I don't think that Peter had a whole lot to be proud of. Um, He was someone who had probably been passed up by other rabbis up to this point. Uh, There's a reason he's quite so eager to drop everything and follow Jesus. And what we see with Peter is somebody who, who really does want people to like him and be proud of him. He, he recognizes pretty quickly, oh my gosh, like there's a lot going on around this Jesus guy who I'm following, and he finds himself thrust right into the middle of a, of a, of a whole movement where thousands of people are coming around. And so what we see with Peter is this combination of two things. One, he is a guy who is constantly trying to step out in faith, literally step out of the boat, and do what faith requires. And he's also somebody who continues to struggle again and again with caring about what people think of him. And he goes back and forth on that all the time. So much so that, unfortunately, the thing that he gets known for the most is that Jesus says to him on the very eve of his death, you're going to deny me three times. And he says, no, I'm not. I would never, after everything I've been through, I would never fear man that much. And he does it. Not only that, but when the early church is formed and Peter is the one leading it, it takes a vision from God to tell him it's okay to eat with Gentiles now. Because as a Jewish person growing up, following the rules, wanting to be a respected person, to him there was nothing worse than eating with Gentiles. And so God had to make it so abundantly clear to him in a very repetitive vision, it's okay for you to do this, don't worry about what people think, knowing that people would look down on him for doing it. But even then, there are situations where, like Paul comes and finds Peter, and and they're they're doing ministry in the times of the early church, and Paul kind of rebukes Peter, and he says, Peter, what the heck, man? Like, I show up, and you're, you're back to doing the old thing again. You're eating with all the Jewish people. You're avoiding the Gentiles. It's totally obvious to everybody that you're way too wrapped up in what all these people think of you. Get over yourself, and get over them. And let's just serve God together. Paul, on the other hand, you see this totally different thing. Because Paul is what it looks like when a person early in life achieves all the stuff they want to achieve. Paul gets the respect of people. He gets the accolades of people. He gets the celebration of people. Paul did well and constantly reminds us of all of the things that he did and all of the stuff that was impressive to people. And yet, he's totally over it now. When God gets a hold of him on the road to Damascus, he realizes all of that stuff didn't mean anything if I wasn't actually doing what God wanted. And it turns out I wasn't. And so for the rest of Paul's life, he's this extreme opposite. This person who's like, I don't care what people think. And no, that doesn't mean he doesn't care what anybody thinks about anything. Paul's the very one who says to us, do whatever you can to be at peace with people. I become all things to all men. I change whatever I can in order to reach people better for the sake of the gospel. But Paul's the one who again and again will will ignore the opinions, the rebuke, the disdain of other people 
in order to serve God. Even to the point to where when he goes to Jerusalem and all of his friends are saying, Paul, don't do it, don't go, it's not good, you shouldn't do it. He's like, whatever, guys, thanks for the help, here I go. It's so fascinating for me to watch these two different people wrestle through what it means to have a big enough view of God that the opinions of other people don't shape who we are and what we do. And you also see in that what's going on around them. A world full of people who are trying as hard as they can to be the best that they can, to feel the best about themselves through any means possible so that the opinions of others would change. If God is glorious, then I don't have to fear anyone or anything. If God is glorious, I can be vulnerable with the people who will hurt me. I can be vulnerable with everybody in my life. If God is glorious, I can be honest and not have to worry about constantly the appearances and the way things will be perceived and the way things might be misperceived. If God is glorious, I don't have to curate and cultivate my own personal image all the time for the sake of the highest public opinion that I can achieve. If God is glorious, we are free to do the things that he has gifted us in doing without needing those things to be okay. If God is glorious, we can love each other without needing each other. There is no greater example of this than Jesus himself. This morning as we continue worshiping, we're going to take communion. We take communion because Jesus came and served as a sacrifice. Jesus was an example. Scripture tells us that even though he was God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself. Jesus is an example of what it looks like when someone perfectly fixes their gaze on how big God is, on how glorious God is. Jesus had more reason than anyone who ever walked the face of the earth to receive glory himself. And even he said, God gets the glory. None of us are good enough to do this on our own. None of us are good enough to leave here and through our own effort and our own accomplishment and our own work, be good enough for God. He is too big for that. And we live in the flesh. And the good news of the gospel says that Jesus took care of that for us. That he came and that he sacrificed. And the reason that we take communion is as a way of remembering and reminding ourselves that this isn't about how good we can become. This isn't about how good we became. This is about what Christ did for us. Let's pray and continue to worship. Father, we all struggle with the fear of man. We would love to believe that we don't, but we do. Father, would you increase our view of you in our minds? Would you draw us to your word? Would you draw us to prayer? Would you even draw our conversations with our friends? to be more about talking about you and less about talking about everything else, God. Would you be glorified as we do that, Lord? As we take communion 
as we remember the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. We pray that you would give us the ability to recognize exactly how glorious and how great you are. It is in your name that we pray. Amen.